You're listening to Personal Rejection Letter, a podcast by writers with day jobs. I'm Dan Lipman. Welcome, everybody, to the best cop podcast episode that we are ever going to record for, and it is going to be the best for one reason. You know what yeah. that reason is, Dan? I do. Why don't you tell them? Because we've rehearsed. We have done this whole thing last week, and so we basically have our lines memorized now. Right. Um, last week's just kind of went away. It was just a rehearsal. Let's just put it that way. and not. That's uh, a nice way of putting it. Yeah. I, version point one, 1.1. We know this is going to be the best episode ever because the one we did last week was the best episode ever. Yeah. And this is going to replace that because yeah. why? Ah, because we practiced. Practice makes perfect. Well, why don't we just use the one we practiced with? <laughs> uh, because it wasn't perfect. Okay. Dan, why do you... Okay, the, the New England Patriots, have you ever heard of them? No, I'm I hear that they're a pretty good ball team. Um, oh. Do they just practice and say, hey, let's not play the game? We practiced. No, they practice and they play. And that's what we're doing today. And they send out scouts to watch other teams practice. And they uh, figure out how they're going to respond to those practices. And in a sense, we do that because we do listen to other podcasts. We do, but we don't spy on them, although I think we should. Absolutely. How are we going to get? Uh, we need a budget for that, though. I would like to be under the table when uh, Steve Almond and Cheryl Strayed record the next Dear Sugar. That would be awesome. Do you wonder if they're like doing a little grab ass under the table? I'm pretty sure they're not, but they. But I would like to know, you know, what coffee are they drinking? You know, what oh. what poetry have they on their table in front of them? Why do you think not? Because they're so openly affectionate and just kind of so upright. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Steve Almond just wouldn't do it. He just seems like no. He's he's the perv. Now. The grab ass stuff would be just secondary to what's already happening vocally yeah. between them. Yeah. But of course, you know, she's Cheryl Strayed. She chose that last name Strayed as a sort of a, I guess is like a, a scarlet letter kind of to, to punish herself for having strayed within her marriage or something like that. Really? Are you aware of that? Yeah. Uh, I actually, you told I me that, but I haven't seen it verified anywhere. So, um, but it is, it is a kind of edgy last pin name. Um, and given her background, um, that she is unashamed of, but regrets. I, I listen to Dear Sugar. It's, I'm kind of a fan of it. Sometimes I don't like it. And sometimes I don't like one of them and, and like the other. And then the next week I'll switch my allegiance. And, uh, but I think that it's, it's a good podcast. It's just like life. That's <laughs> that. Yeah. I mean, I, it's in wild. I read wild and that she does. She says she, she explains that in wild. And that's oh. when I changed. That I changed crazy. my uh, my pen name to uh, Dan Eats Too Much because of that. <laughs> you didn't rehearse that, did you, Dan? No, that was an ad lib. Go off script, Kelly. It's a wonderful feeling. <laughs> I don't know. I can never do that. That'll be that's my arc of life is to eventually get to a point where I can go off script, and that'll be when I'm older, and sure. it'll happen on air after like ten years of of doing this part broad, broadcast. It'll happen, and it'll just be this like we'll break down crying. And, yeah. uh, but we can't do it in like episode 10. You know what I mean? It's like the big thing happens in your novel in the first chapter. Eh, you know, where do you go? 
So, hey, but why don't we talk about it? Good Steve Winwood reference, by the way. I'm hashtagging Steve Winwood. I don't even know what that is. How did I reference Steve Winwood? And what did Steve Winwood would do? What I know he's a music guy from... He's a musician, and you said the name of one of his biggest solo albums in your last soliloquy. But I'm going to let the listeners find it on their own. The first one who writes to us the name of the Steve Winwood album, Kelly Daniels just mentioned, gets a free copy of one of our books. <laughs> hey, when did we do the... Uh... You, you're going to give away a copy of your book for the first uh, um, recording, um, review. That was in our PED episode, which is going to uh, broadcast Wednesday. By the time the listeners okay. are hearing us, they've heard it, they heard it. it two weeks ago. Yeah. So today, maybe we should, uh, well, let's see how that one goes first before I start giving my book away, if you know Understood. what I mean. Understood. Yeah, yeah, we're going to save the big guns. Keep your powder dry. So Dan, do you consider yourself a regional writer? Or more of a man of the world in terms of your writing and uh, more of a Faulkner with your little county and your intimate knowledge of the folkies there, uh-huh. or more of a Hemingway, kind of jet setting around, tough guy, speaks in different languages sometimes, makes the reader try to kind of figure out what the hell's going on. Where? You mean the kind of writer who, who, who sees the world and reports back or the kind of writer who picks a spot and kind of reports from that spot and broadcasts to the world? Yeah, sure. That's a pretty good way of putting it. I definitely uh, see myself somewhere in that continuum. <laughs> really? Like right in the middle, or do you know? Well, I, you know, I I I grew. I lived in the Chicago. I grew. I was born in Chicago, as the another album <clears throat> title, and uh, I um, moved when I was raised in the suburbs, in the city, back and forth, and then uh, uh, moved out here to the farmland, and I've kind of pretty much stayed put. Although most, a lot of what I write uh, is whenever I go on a vacation, I write about it. Does that count? You write about Mexico in your book. That's right. And uh, I remember I was like, I don't remember what it was, though, so I shouldn't bring it up. But I remember I tried to bag on you about you got something wrong about the language or whatever. Um, and I may, may have even been wrong. And But it was that it was a story about how people are harvesting heads from the yeah. uh, Mayan kind of folk who live in Guatemala. Yeah. And uh, I was saying, you know, you didn't quite get something wrong. He's like, you mean they're not harvesting heads? <laughs> <laughs> I think we were on Ragbri. It was our first Ragbri, which is a long bicycle rider for those, ride, um, for those of you who don't know. Um, Across the state and, of Iowa. Yes. And uh, I thought you were a funny guy at that point. That's when I realized, oh, a lot of what he says is, he, is a joke. I didn't know That's that right. before. And it can be hurtful. That's the thing about humor. And I hope that didn't hurt you too badly. No, no. I it, it all came together. No, I felt like a jerk for like pointing out some petty thing that I thought I caught you. And then you uh, made me, you sort of turned it around on me. And uh, then I got to feel better because I felt worse, if you know what I mean. I deserved to feel worse. And you gave me the opportunity to feel worse. And so then mm-hmm. I felt better. Yeah, there you go. That's another gift of comedy. What about you, Kelly Daniels? You're the world traveler, I'm going to just guess for for you. Wouldn't you say? Um, I am a man without a home, Dan. And uh, I don't want uh, you to feel too sad for me. But uh, no, I, I honestly do. I, I was uh, raised um, in, in a hippie nomadic kind of state for my early childhood. And then, but, and then my mom is sort of somebody who moves every couple of years, even if it's just around California. She's in Oregon now. And so my first many years of life, and then when I became when I moved out of my parents' house, 
I started doing it myself. I met these travelers, and so I traveled to Europe like a lot of people do, the backpacking, and I got hooked and spent time in Mexico and Central America and moved to Atlanta from, you know, Orange County, California, uh, lived in San Francisco, lived in Michigan, and now I'm just sort of seeking out the uh, the job of, you know, the, the whole writing career and academic career that goes with it. I ended up in Rock Island. And so I've been here for almost 10 years, but I just don't feel like I'm a Midwesterner. And I just don't feel like I'll ever really be a Midwesterner. And I appreciate some of what's going on around here, but, you know, let me put yeah, it this way. AWP, yeah. I tried to get into two different AWPs lately, put a bunch of uh, proposals for panels to the one in Minneapolis. And it was all, hey, I'm a Midwesterner. Check me out. Every all three oh. of them rejected, which is pretty oh, bad cool. luck. Yeah, you you've got the stink of coast on you. You 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 could pass as a Midwesterner, I think, at about ten feet. But once you get into a conversation with you, there's something a little bit lilting in your voice, and there's also something a little bit a little twinkle in your eye that indicates you you've seen ocean more than once or twice. Maybe a little bit of uh, contempt for all those around me and the uh -huh. landscape. And uh, get that too often. Not on, not until the second drink has come. Yeah, that's true. A little anger starts coming in. Right. You mean you really like it? This place is fucking shit, dude. Don't you you oh. ever been to California? Pulled out the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> eating cheese around here. So well, yeah, I'm kind of a man without a home. And but no, I quite honestly, I I um I've chose this topic about regionalism just because I know some people really find success by writing about a place. And it has to be the right place. Um, of course, one of the right places is New York City or Bro Brooklyn. That, that seems to be a well that just doesn't go dry, you know, in terms of. Um, and I guess if you're writing about California, there's a little bit of room for maybe the L.A. scene if, if uh, you're into that. And maybe there's some beach culture stuff if, it, if you make it glamorous enough. But... Um, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like the Midwest. It'd be easy to maybe Chicago. You could you could make that your your region. Well, Chicago really has a specific voice. I was actually when I you know I've mentioned this before, but I interview writers for Fifth Wednesday, and I interviewed uh, Stuart Dybeck, who was your old erstwhile teacher, and he he had a very interesting thing about uh, the Chicago voice and about. Um, um, Oh, I'm blanking on his name. The man with the golden arm guy. Why am I blanking on his name? Uh, um, Nelson Algren. Yes. And uh, I had never read Nelson Algren prior to that, although I knew all about him. And he had certainly come up in several uh, classes. And it was sort of like one of those one of those things that uh, I just sort of kind of like nodded my head. And I finally got around to reading Man with the Golden Arm. And it is really fantastic. It's a great, great book. And there is a very specific Chicago voice that having read Nelson Algren, it's almost like the Rosetta Stone. I understand Saul Bellow a little differently and uh, even Stuart Dybeck, you know, a little differently. Is it Dybeck or Dybeck? Dybeck. Okay. Stu and, uh, Dybeck. Stu Dybeck, to those who know him. To me, yeah. it was, uh, to me, it was Professor Stuart. Dybeck. Mr. Stewart. Professor Dybeck. And um, um, interestingly, I also, I interview a lot of Chicago writers for this. I interviewed... Um, have I talked about this before with you? The, the writer um, Neffenegger, who no. wrote the, the Time Traveler's Wife? No. Which is a pretty good book. And, um, you know, it, so I always ask the question, 
are you a Chicago writer? And they always say either, yes, I'm a Chicago writer because uh, I read a lot of Nelson Algren, or no, I'm not because I, uh, I don't know Nelson Algren. So Nelson Algren still really is sort of the, you know, the, the ur Chicago novelist. Cool. Thanks for that little lesson. I've never read The Man with the Golden Arm. I know that it was a movie, Frank Sinatra, right? Yeah, you should definitely read it. Yeah, put it on my list. What does that mean, Dan? It means time it means for revisions from a previous episode. And uh, I know you've been reflecting a lot on the past, as is your want. Um, and so, what do you got for us today? I have a revision from a listener by the name of uh, Molly McNett, who is a writer. And uh, she, she, we, the one, the podcast that just, we just released was the one about writer colonies. Yeah. And, and she wanted me to correct something you said about the uh, experience the two of you had at the McDowell colony having to do with the, um, the New York writers versus the Midwest writers. Yeah. And I think you said something like the mid that she, you would, she and you, you and her, she, the two of you were the only Midwest writers and you guys kind of hung out. And then the New Yorkers kind of hung out. Well, Molly yeah. wants you guys and everybody to know that the New Yorker writers really liked her and she was really good friends with all of them too. Yeah. Although she liked you as well, just like you said. But she wants everybody to know that she was actually really popular there. <laughs> did I suggest she wasn't? Yeah, I guess I did. I lumped her into my little um, cloud of misery. Right. And, uh, no, she was popular. Everybody was actually really nice there, and everybody got along. I just, well, never mind. That's a good <laughs> revision. Thanks for revising me, Molly. And, well, and I uh, think that it's, uh, it, it, you know, it goes along with the whole regionalism versus uh, world traveler thing as well. So. I kind of made that all work out for you. You did. It all does come together. What um, about you, Kelly Daniels? What did you fuck up on? Well, I, as you know, from uh, the first time we recorded this, I, I stuck with this. I could say that I, as far as revisions go, it would be nice to not re-record an episode. Like, yeah. that would be a good revision. In a Just, sense, this whole thing is a revision. Yes, this is. We're revising less. Um no, it was something that uh, I was talking to Joe Bonomo about and, and that when he Ooh. was on, Joe Bonomo, author huh. of Field Notes from the Inside. Did yes. it, Field Notes, is that right? I don't want to um, get it wrong. It's off the top yes. of my head. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think the emphasis, the, the accent is on notes, Field Notes from the Inside, not Field Notes. Yeah. Okay. Accent's on Field. Gotcha. Okay. Um, we were talking to him and, and, uh, we got to the segment where we talk about what we're writing and all that. And uh, I said something about this short story that I wrote about the heavy metal guys that sneak into the concert and get stuck. And one of them is, has a gay crush on the other one and doesn't even like heavy metal. He's into the talking heads. And, uh, and then Joe asked me about whether I wanted to, you know, if I was going to revise it, it never got it published. That was the point of it. Like just working on it for years off and on. And, uh, I told him that, nah, I just like started reading it and it was 20 pages, 21 pages long and I didn't want to read it. And then I went on to this thing about page length as if that is really a deciding factor of whether, whether a piece is worthy or not. Right. And that's completely stupid. It's just so wrong and so not what I believe. And it's just like, why? I don't even know why. You put a microphone in front of me and hit record and I just say things I don't believe and that aren't true and then just say them as if they are cool. and move on with life. 
you know, that in itself is an interesting topic. But the reason you do it is because you're in the moment and you're getting a sense of what the listener sort of wants from you and you're trying to please that person. And you were just trying to be funny. And in that moment, it was the appropriate thing to say, regardless of whether it was true or not. Kelly Daniels, give yourself a break. Oh, that's really nice of you. But I just I also just want to take it back and say it's the problem with that piece is not that it was 21 pages long at all. It was that it was written in the height of my MFA influence, and it just really had a mannered uh, MFA workshop style voice that just uh-huh. seemed a little too fancy for what I write now. And it just doesn't seem real. It seems false. It seems affected. And when the voice is not right, it's very hard to rewrite the story. You know what I mean? It's yeah, not, then you can start from scratch. Yeah, every sentence is kind of subtly wrong and not in a way that you can just kind of change. You have to like just wipe it out and start over. And, you know, maybe I'll do that someday, but probably not. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting way to uh, sort of go back and reflect on your own writing. And before we get too far away from the topic, I want to say that Joe's book is actually called Field Recordings from the Inside. Got it. I knew that Notes was wrong. That's why That's I, why we're both yeah. accenting it incorrectly. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, Joe. That's but, okay. Uh, but we corrected it, and we didn't even have to wait for a different episode to correct it. Yes. Um, so back to our topic, it, I uh, sort of ran out of notes, and I there was a story I told that was a little bit... Uh, <clears throat> perhaps mean-spirited the first time, but seemed like it was useful. And it was basically about, well, let me rephrase this and, and step back a little bit. Well, before you do, can I ask you a question? Is this the one about uh, the, the van? No. Okay, see, I was worried that we wouldn't be able to get back to that. To me, when I look back at that episode, that was a really fascinating anecdote. So I hope we circle back to figure out how we got there. But you go ahead and tell your story. Well, I think that it was, no, it was me sort of talking about authenticity and the problem of writerly persona and regional affiliation. Um, What, I guess what I'm getting at is where... How honest we need to be about these things. Um, okay, can you be a Chicago writer if you're sort of not really a Chicago? Yeah, I grew up, you know what? You're in the suburbs of Chicago. I grew up in the suburbs. Believe me. No, I feel guilty. When people say, where are you from? And I say Chicago, I always hear like my cousin Robert's voice in the back of my head saying, no, you didn't. You grew up in the suburbs. Well, he actually grew up in Chicago. So yeah, there is. I mean, but that's writers have to deal with that on all levels. You feel like a fraud all the time. Well, my story, my example of what rubs me wrong in terms of uh, writerly identity and uh, regional affiliation, and there's a tremendous amount of envy wrapped up in this little kind of story I'm going to tell. This is a story about a writer that I know who is much more successful than me. And, oh, um, yeah. I remember this. And he's uh, got a bunch of novels, and they're all set in a particular place. And it's a really, it's an interesting setting. And um, that's all fine. And he has a following of people who are partially just love his writing and like the stories he tells, but they're also really interested in the people and the region that he writes about. And and I suspect a lot of them are from that region and identify kind of uh, ethnically, I suppose, with the people there. Um, And that's fine. But where I don't like it is this sort of writerly, um, like the website and the the live appearances, readings and stuff. He really makes himself seem like a certain kind of guy, like this really tough guy, and it's all camping and having Bowie knives and lumberjack shirts 
and big, you know, hiking boots is sort right. of the I thing. Know that, yeah. And um, I just happened to know the guy from before, and he was just a pretty wealthy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much money his parents have, but he just seems very soft, very taken care of. And the whole time in graduate school, he had a wife that made a ton of money, lived in a big old house um, in the nice district where the professors lived and all the students are kind of like scrabbling around trying to make ends meet with their student loans. And, um, he, uh, here's the, here's the kicker the, the sort of climax of my story is I was in a bike shop one day and getting, you know, buying a part to fix up my Kona. I had a Kona back then too. Kona That's hybrid. not the riding now. Not the Kona now. No, this was a this was like the lowest end Kona just for your entry level person who's ready to make the move into better bike, like five hundred dollar bike land right. instead of <laughs> two hundred dollar bike land. So got anyway, it. I'm in there and I see him come in. He's got this like bicycle over his shoulder, a kind of hybrid bike, nice looking aluminum bike, I guess. Walks in. Hey man, what's going on? Blah blah blah. Hey, what's going on? He's like, oh yeah, I got a flat tire. And so he brought, brought his bicycle in to the bike shop so that they could fix his flat tire. Wow. That's just not cool to me. And okay, if you are like a multimillionaire and you just have people do everything for you and that's just how you roll, then there's something you probably have your limo driver follow you in the limo while you ride in case you have any problems so you could get in the car. And But if you're presenting yourself as this tough outdoorsman, this Bowie knife wielding guy who wears hiking boots and you don't fix your own flat and you take it into the bike shop to have them do it. I just thought, so you could put it, the bike back in your SUV and then drive it back home and then let it sit yeah. in your garage for another year before you take it out again. So I was just like, that's bullshit. And literally fixing my own flat inner tubes is about the manliest I ever feel. So he's really depriving himself of an obvious, uh, after you told that story, I, I kind of you told me who it was off air, of course, and I googled it, and I, I see what you mean about the website and stuff like that. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it and is. I just got to I got to look at those pictures and think you can't even fix a flat, man. But okay, here's the thing, just from your perspective, how much of my sort of complaining about this? I mean, is it valid? Like, is it really that bad? To present yourself and your website like kind of different from how you really are. And and is there anything wrong with just being a, you know, you're a a public sort of brand at some point? Well, you, you, you know, you're almost, you're talking about persona, which I guess where you're from is part of your persona and where you project yourself as, as uh, fitting in is just part of that persona. But I mean, we all do it in a certain sense, but, and, and really, of course, your response to him walking in with that bike that he needed to flat tire change has more to do with the bike that you were riding and yourself and your own persona and you know your own feelings about yourself but it's it's still um an interesting lens with which to dot 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 you know it was a i had a phony persona around that time i realize now i had i rode a bike everywhere i didn't have an automobile and this is michigan and so there we had this lake effect snow there would be feet of snow every winter multiple times and i had this Kona, like semi mountain bike kind of hybrid, more yeah. mountain bike than than road, you know that style. And I would just ride it everywhere. And I wore a after crashing several times in the ice, I started wearing a helmet. You know, you know when you I don't know if you ever went through that phase when you first start riding a bike and you don't wear a helmet and you're like we didn't wear helmets at all when I when I mean there were no helmets when I started riding a bike. Yeah, and uh, so I didn't want to wear a 
a geeky bicycle helmet. So I had like a skateboard helmet, you know, those guys, that, that sort of way of trying to get around the uncoolness of the bike. Right. Helmet. Um, so I was that guy and I was sort of, people assumed and I let them assumed and even started encouraging it that I had made this, uh, decision about not using motor vehicles that had something to do with politics and with making the world a better place and et cetera, et cetera. And it was just like, I just didn't have any money for a car. I had this, like my car was a, needed like thousands of dollars worth of work and I didn't have it. And so instead I just sort of like, you know, sold it for $500 or, and bought a bike. So I was not a do-gooder. I was poor. And I was ready to let people think I was a do-gooder and a political, you know, somebody who makes stands and, and lives up to them. And so there it is. Confession. We all do it. We all lie. Well, speaking of your persona and stuff like this, I don't know how to make an elegant transition, but I mean, why don't you talk about that, what you talked about on the last podcast about where you come from and sort of what gives you that sense of your authenticity? Um. Oh, well, and also my sense of homelessness, right? Like, yeah. is it, was I talking specifically about living in the van, the step van? Yes. Um, you were talking about, uh, yeah, you and your family living in the van. And then somehow it turned into uh, Nick from the uh, Hemingway stories, watching a baby being born and then some Native American killing himself in a bunk. Yes. That's how I remember it. Good. Uh, well, that tells me the parameters of the story. Um, when I was uh, like four or so, I, when I was three, I lived in a commune in Kauai. And then we moved to Calif back to California, and uh, my dad bought a step van, a delivery van, this old green kind of, you know, kind of that era's version of a UPS van, and put it, outfitted it with bunk beds and, I don't know, an ice chest. It basically made it into this home. Um, like I'm a, guessing there weren't a lot of bike helmets there. No, we didn't have any bike helmets. Um Another time, we, I was living in that thing when uh, I first learned how to ride a bicycle on my third birthday. Um, I was forced to by my sadistic uncle, who wouldn't let, he took the training wheels off like immediately and just started pushing me on it until I learned how. So I cried the whole time until I got it. Um, and that, that's actually a story in the sun. It's called The yeah. Water Song. And you still do that on the bike sometimes. Cry I've seen it. or fall. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, we lived in this van and uh, we kind of roamed around the mountains and the beaches and we went down into Mexico. I have this memory of my dad buying lobsters, live lobsters on the beach in the headlights. It was nighttime. So it was in the headlights of our, our van and I was looking through the windshield and he meets this guy with this big burlap sack who dumps the sack onto the ground and all these lobsters start running around and my dad grabs one and pulls its head off like twisted oh, it head, head off because yeah these are not the main ones with the big claws they're the spiny ones that that's the west coast kind of ones east coasters speaking of region east coasters don't think that california or mexican lobsters are really lobsters really well they're different species they don't have yeah. the claws and they're you know they're different they're good though um so, so anyway, we lived. Go ahead. From, oh, no, yes. I was just going to say you. You're a regional writer. You've got. You've got the. Even though you're sitting in the Midwest, you've got the baggage of a uh, West Coast writer. No, I think I do, and I think I. Uh, I'm writing right now about the Quad Cities, but it's absolutely Quad Cities from a perspective of a a West Coast person who's you know 
Um, who actually doesn't like other people to, and this is how I am. I don't like it when coastal people make fun of the Midwest or talk flyover state and all that. I get really pissed off, but I criticize this place quite a sure. lot. And I've been here 10 years. I think I've, uh, I've earned that because I understand hey, it and I understand what's wrong with it, but I also understand what's right with it. And I just don't like it being dismissed by superior people who don't even know what it is. And, uh, so should I get back to my story? Um, Please. Living in this van, driving around, and uh, here's the part that that I think you remember. My brother was born in that van, and uh, I was four years old, and he was um, zero, as these things happen. <laughs> as the story starts. <laughs> but my, uh, my mother and my aunt was there, too, my mother's sister, um, who's tough. And my dad decided to take mescaline to experience the birth of his second. I was also born at home without a doctor in an apartment, and it went pretty smoothly. But this time, we're out in the middle of the woods, um, a place called Idlewild, somewhere in these pine forests up in Southern California mountains. Um, and uh, my mom's giving birth, and it's a difficult birth, and he's not coming out. And it's, it, I think it took like 24 hours or something of labor. My dad takes mescaline. He starts freaking out. They're not Christians. They're into <laughs> oming and like Eastern spirituality, hippie spirituality. But he finds sure. a Bible and he starts reading aloud from it to my mom because he thinks she's going to die. And uh, finally, he just took off into the woods to like ride out his mescaline high alone without having to deal with all this intense bullshit of his son being oh, born God. and his wife maybe dying. And um, meanwhile, my my aunt, my mom's sister helped deliver my, my brother. And he eventually came out and I was sitting, I remember this very clearly. I was sitting in the front seat of the van, pretending I was driving as a four-year-old might do, you know, just sort of moving the, the steering wheel back and forth and making sounds. And uh, my aunt came in from the back of the van and goes, Hey, do you want to meet your brother? And I said, nah, <laughs> says, you know, I was just busy. Sure. Uh, I guess, or maybe it was upsetting to me. I'm not sure, but I just since then you you've met him though, right? My brother, yeah, yes, yes. Good. We were okay. we were acquainted eventually. I get he was like bright yellow, like with jaundice, like just yellow colored, yellow eyes, and um, but uh, yeah, he's uh, recovered. But that's it's an out. amazing story, obviously, and and and. Uh, I, I I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, but you should really write about it. <laughs> yeah, I do try to write about it. It's funny, though. When you get into the memoir game, what you realize is that um, everybody, no matter how amazing your story is, somebody else has had a, a more amazing story. And uh, the story itself doesn't sell it anymore unless, and really, unless you're like, I don't know, you've, you were kidnapped and held by a sex cult for 25 years and then finally mm. escaped. You know what I mean? It really right. has to be like absolutely blaring, like attention getting headline. Um, and not just a, wow, that's a kind of a strange childhood. Um, I just think the, the memoir market has been saturated. And so you just have to write it well. And the thing is you can have a, a really strange and odd and, and just fascinating on the surface story and screw it up by writing it poorly. 
Um, or you could have a completely what seems like a completely boring upbringing and you can make it absolutely gripping and, and fascinating by writing it well. So, so you're um, saying talent has something to do with it ultimately. I think so. I think and, so. I, and I think um, we're, I'm willing to take a stand on that. Okay. Um, so anyway, that was my story. I'm you're glad we got right. it out. I don't know if it came out as well the second time that I felt a little canned because it seemed like it came out of nowhere last time, but the story is out. And um, so, that's always uh, the way when you try to recapture the magic of something that's already happened. Yeah, man. Hey, do you have any final advice for writers? How about some of our young writers or emerging writers? Should you go about cultivating a, a uh, persona like either one, either do you want to be a, a person without a home and set your stories in all different places? Or do you want to just or uh, do you just not think about it? I think that it's tricky to do. It's tricky to calculate it, let me say. And and what happens, happens to you. And it's, as far as advice goes, I think of the advice that a, a poet by the name of Nikki Giovanni once gave to me personally when I was sitting in a lecture hall and she was addressing the crowd. She said that if you want to be a great writer, you should be from a very specific place, stay there till you're about 18, and then move away. So I think she's having it both ways. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think if you stay, you're doomed. Right. Definitely leave. If you, but if you were not really from a place, that doesn't seem like it's fair. Like, you know, you're like, can't be a writer because sorry, your first 20 years of your life, you moved your army brat or something. Well, it's a little abstract in a sense, but I, I understand what she's saying. Uh, I, you know, I think about Flannery O'Connor is the only writer I can think of who's from a specific place and then uh, basically stayed there. But she did spend a couple years at writing programs. So that she went to the university of Iowa. I mean, I've never heard of that. Is that a good program? Um, given that it's in the Midwest, I have to assume it's bad. It's not good. It's probably the one that you get into when you can't, every other place has turned you down. You probably go to Iowa. I think it's your fallback school if you want to be a writer. Yeah. I mean, it's not on either of the coasts. I don't see how it could be any good. The one I went to was on the East coast in Maryland. Hmm. Yours was in the South. That's a place. Uh, Atlanta. Atlanta. Uh, southern writers really feel like, I mean, that's a very common thing. You're a Southern writer and you know right. it if you're Correct. from there and you cultivate it and you always <laughs> say ma'am and you always say papa and mama and you got some grits going on. There's got to be a trailer park. There's got to be a plantation. There's some rules to be a Southern writer. Right. Um. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Tom Waits says that song, never saw the East Coast till I moved to the West. Ooh. It's kind of a pithy way to put it. Yeah, that's great. But it's true. You don't see home until you leave it. Um, when right. you're in it, you're blind to it. You think it's everything. And then when you leave it, you see how shitty it is. And then you finally go, oh, my God, I've wasted my <laughs> life. What have I done? Yeah. So, Dan, what you reading, man? What you writing and how's the writing and... How about your teaching? Anything you want to tell us about your uh, extracurriculars? You know, last week we I, ta- I had just finished Norwood, and I enjoyed our conversation. So I'm just going to pretend like, again, I just finished it. So I just finished Norwood. Yeah, I love Norwood. You know what? I want to. Here's a topic for another day. Okay, I'm writing it down. Best fucking books we've ever read. That's a great book. I mean, yeah. excuse me, that's a great topic. I mean, that's one of those. The other day, somebody texted me and said, hey, I'm getting a, a birthday present for, for my husband. Do you have a book you can recommend? You know, not even a new book, just like 
like a great book. And I just thought to myself, this is my favorite question anybody ever asks me is what book, what should I read next? It's such a, you know, and it's so rarely asked, but it's gives me an opportunity. Unfortunately, I couldn't just say just one. I had to, I had to go to an email. Or something. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, it, it's also nice to be positive when we, we do kind of bag on, you know, different, we complain a lot on this, on this podcast. And I think complaining feels good and it's kind of entertaining when you do it in a funny way. Right. Maybe not complaining, but um, insulting. Is I think we, we say it like it is, Kelly, and we can't say that Norwood's a great book if we've told you that every other book that's come up on the podcast is equally great. Yeah. But Norwood really is. And uh, it's a lot of fun. And it's Charles Portis. And um, Can I tell he, you my favorite joke in it? Go ahead. When the, uh, the main character, Norwood, is trying to compliment this, he meets a circus midget. I guess is what yeah. the guy's title is. And the guy's he's a like big, fat British guy. Yeah. He's overweight and he lost his job because he got too fat. And, um, he said, he's the, the smallest perfect person in the world. And he's like, what do you mean? Perfect. He's like, well, look at my fingers. They're perfectly proportioned. They're not like these stubby little ones, like the guy they replaced me with. And, and so he has these regular proportions. He's just smaller. And Norwood's like, yeah, that's right. If I saw you standing in the desert, and there was nothing around you, and I was walking towards you, I would bump into you because I would think that you were farther away. Yeah. He said, I would think you were, I, 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 I would think you were a lot closer than you actually were. Okay. Yeah. And the, and the guy goes, oh, I never thought of it that yeah. way. Yeah. The, the book is filled with that. There's a great conversation he has with a guy dressed like Mr. Peanut in Times Square, where he's just asking him, like, does it get hot in there? Does it, uh, and the guy's like, you know, I've never been asked all these questions before. <laughs> Yeah, it's a terrific oh, read. What yeah. about you, Kelly? What are you up to? Um, gosh, I sort of forgot. It's been a while. Um, yeah, I don't know. What am I? I this is unscripted, and I think that I. Well, you really do need to write it out ahead of time. I take it back. You should keep doing that. You're terrible. <laughs> yeah, you got me there. That's true. I can't think on the spot. Uh, no, I don't know. What am I reading? Um. You know, I'm reading for class, and uh, I'm I, I'm not on anything that I really am am really enthusiastic about. I like my classes. I have a oh, I have something to say. Um, and the my students may listen to this, so I probably need to be careful about it. But um, somebody in my creative nonfiction class wrote this obsessively detailed and focused profile on somebody who he called R. And it took like a couple of pages and I started going, this is getting a little uncomfortable. By page three, there I had absolute proof that he was writing about me. Oh. And it was like, it was just this real physical description and, and every single thing I, I wear, was wearing and, and then the way that I hold my glass. And there was this whole thing about glasses, like, because I take my glasses off and put them on. And, and it was just the most extraordinarily weird experience reading about myself in this way. And, um, it was mostly, it was a pretty generous read and it was like, I mean, it seemed like he liked me, but it was also like, you know, it was just weird. Um, what was the assignment? Like, write Write about a villain or something? No, or? Yeah. No, it was a create, it was a, um, nonfiction workshop. It's like write an essay, a memoir, a profile, journalist, literary journalism, you know, just anything in the umbrella of creative nonfiction and bring it to class. And, and so everybody in class read it too. So that was the other, it was like a performance art thing where I had to 
I wasn't thinking about the piece itself. I was thinking about what it meant to me and how I was going to have to present it to the class. That's a, that's a way of sort of subverting, uh, the, you know, the idea that you're going to ultimately grade it. Now, you're totally uh, incapable of seeing it objectively now yeah. at this point. Well, he said something like I um, looked o at the class over over the tops of my glasses, like the sexy librarian. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, but, you do do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know what I think by the end? I thought he was just fucking with me. But then in class, I think it was this homage. I think it was like he, you know, thinks I'm a neat guy. And, and um, but it was just, it was really strange and um, unnerving and made me feel super self-conscious about what I did and said and the way I acted in class. And um, the class knew it too, right? Yes. Uh, most of them did. A few of them didn't. Because I just brought it out. I said, hey, we need to just be honest about what, what's going on here. And a few of them didn't because they just don't, they're, you know, they're kind of dimly aware of me in the classroom yeah. as this kind of yeah. old guy that's just kind of there. But if some of them know me better and they saw that there were some signs that were undeniable. And mm -hmm. um, so it was, uh, so I thought he was um, being sincere, like, you know, kind of like goodwill hunting, like this is my teacher and he's inspiring me. But I thought he was more just making fun of me because I just feel like if anybody's talking about me, they must be making fun of me. And uh, so it was a weird experience. And uh, it made me think, that's why people don't like it when you make them the subject of your book. Of course. And uh, I kind of already knew that. And I also know that it's always a risk when you know writers that they might write about you. But it definitely is, uh, even if they are being nice to you, it doesn't feel super good to me at least i don't want that kind of attention but oh well i'm yeah. such an egomaniac i i need that validation which is why i behaved so outrageously around you for the last couple of years i'm dying to get in one of those sun essays but i don't know if <laughs> I have to do it. it seems like i write about like stuff that's like um at least 10 or 15 years old so keep at it it's coming down the pike yay yeah 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 well thank you kelly this was a lot of fun yeah man i dig Again? it guess what i get to do now uh, are we going to re-record this a third time? I was hoping. One can hope. No, I get to go help uh, my buddies move, carrying boxes oh. and stuff. That That is sometimes the worst thing ever. But like at our age, it happens so less frequently than it used to maybe 15 years ago that I, I, I can see it being fun today. And at our age, a lot of our friends have enough money to hire movers to do all the heavy stuff. And all we have to do is the boxes like this time. Which one of our friends isn't hiring a mover? Call him out. No, no, he is. Tim Diavis um, had hired... Oh, Tim, he's got money. He hired a mover to do all the furniture, but uh -huh. not the boxes. So you get a special deal if you do, if you move the boxes yourself. Okay. But, the, but they move all the hard, heavy stuff. He's probably got a lot of records and stuff he doesn't want the movers to mess with. Yeah, and I think he probably wants all his friends to show up and have some donuts yeah. and coffee and see his new house and uh, maybe get a beer afterward. And so I'm, it sounds like fun. Yeah, it's kind of cold. Sean going to be there? Sean will be there. Hey, it's uh, St. Patty's Day Parade Day here in uh, Davenport. Okay. I'm not we wearing had green. Last week in Rockford. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. Lame. <laughs>
I don't know why. <laughs> just like, yeah, I'm doing it a different weekend from us. That is just, so. That's so West Coast of you to snoot down your nose at us rock fortyans. Well, you're trying what? to just do it early. You're just like showing up early at the meeting as if you think that's going to get you the big bonus. It's not how See, it works, man. We get our parade done early, and then on St. Patty's actual day, we just do our drinking. Mm. The kids hide on that day. Very good. All so right, anyway, Kelly. hey, man. Nice talking to you as always and yeah, looking yeah. forward to future recordings and yeah. God bless and God save you and God speed. Take care, oh, everybody. God's got a lot of things to do now. Bye-bye, yeah. Kelly. Bye-bye. Ciao. Special thanks to Augustana College and WOG Student Radio. Gabe Tucker is our audio engineer and Sub-Atlantic provides the theme music. You can reach Dan and Kelly on Facebook. We always welcome comments, critiques, suggestions, and especially praise. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you hear, do a podcast a solid and leave a review on iTunes. See you next time.